you know, we have some very visible uh, programs like childcare, and then the need to have this advocacy supported, and and that I think has led to the creation of these work-life offices. Welcome to another episode of the Work Life Hub podcast. Each week, we bring you an inspiring guest to help you discover the new world of work and learn how your organization can reach its full potential. Thank you for tuning in and spending some time with us today. To find out more about the Work Life Hub, please go to www.worklifehub.com. Welcome to the listeners of the Work Life Hub podcast. This is your host, Agnes Uheretsky. And today I'm joined from California by Phyllis Stewart Pires. Hi, Phyllis. Hi there. So Phyllis is the Senior Director of Work-Life Strategy at Stanford University. And she's also the President of the Board of KUFA, which is the College and University Work-Life Family Association. And we're going to be speaking a little bit later about this uh, organization. And just as a short introduction, in her current role at Stanford, where she is since 2012, Phyllis has the responsibility for designing and managing programs and services that support the Stanford community in navigating the competing demands of work, study, personal and family lives. And prior to that, she was at SAP as Vice President for Global Head of Diversity and also occupied a number of other senior roles in HR. It's a great pleasure for me to be interviewing Phyllis because this is really at the heart of the Work-Life Hub, of work-life integration, Uh, somebody who is helping the staff and faculty and students with their own work-life strategies and conflicts and services. So um, handing over to you now, Phyllis, would you mind telling listeners a little bit about yourself, how you got into this role, and just what gets you up in the morning? Absolutely. Thank you for that very nice introduction, Agnes, and I'm thrilled to be here today. So, you know, my my career has not taken a very direct path. As you mentioned, I've served in a variety of roles and worked for a number of different types of organizations. But I would say that there's really certain passions that um, my career has reflected throughout. And that's really my belief that all children deserve a quality, life-changing experience during their first five years of life. And I believe that that can happen in high-quality early education and childcare settings. The second one is that I really believe that supporting families lifts up all communities and lifts those communities up in a way that allows greater independence for those families as well as better outcomes for the children um, supported by those families. I also am very passionate about increasing the representation rates of women in leadership positions because I believe that that is ultimately what will change the world once we 
have gender balance in our decision-making roles, whether that's in government, um, private institutions, all of those things. And then finally, I really am passionate in my belief that diversity on teams and within teams leads to greater creativity, uh, more positive impact, and gives people the opportunity to be heard, but also to learn how to listen to others. So, you know, again, if I put all of those passions together, that is what has led me on this journey of working um, in employer-supported childcare, working now for an educational institution in support of their um, work life and family services, and then having woven together some of my work in the area of gender diversity, um, the broader diversity topic, family services, and then culture change. I would add into your question about what gets me up in the morning. I am a change maker, and I believe there's a distance to go on all of those goals that I outlined. And I like to be part of laying the track for progress. Um, and so that's what gets me up in the morning and keeps me going. Thank you very much for for your 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 passionate uh, introduction to to yourself and of course these are absolutely goals that that we we also share um, and I also share personally and I think what is really interesting in your case is putting these um, these different objectives these different change aspirations together in the work life umbrella because we see a lot that there seem to be also still a lot of siloed discourse around one on gender equality or or women advancing to leadership positions and all kinds of positions. Then we have diversity inclusion and then we have early childhood care and education. But what really fascinates me is how all of this comes together in your role and you're able to pull these different levers that will actually benefit one for the other and and have them have them have an impact and an interaction a relation on each other as well you know you raise the issue of these topics being in silos and i absolutely think that that is one of the challenges that we face in moving this work forward one of the ways i think about that is i think unfortunately all of these things exist in sort of a culture of scarcity And so, you know, they all are topics that struggle somewhat to get the visibility and the attention and the resources that they need. And so I think that that can sometimes cause each of us to um, be very focused on retaining what progress and resources we've been able to obtain and, and just rightly causes some of the challenges that we see in terms of people not perhaps being able to create some of the collaborative energy that might come from us being able to tackle these things um, together. So that's just my observation on that. Yeah, absolutely. No, I totally agree. And 
And we have seen this also in Europe, uh, especially with European policies, that some a phenomenon that was, um, I think, coined the term, was coined by Mary Daly of Oxford University of the defamilialization of family policy, that we all of a sudden started to think, you know, ministries started to divide into these target groups of, you know, elder care and, and early childhood care, and then education, women, uh, minorities, very different. Whereas there's clearly a, a symbiosis and, and also um, a real benefit to linking the two and thinking more in terms of two-generation approaches or three-generation approaches, because ultimately they're not independent from each other. A woman's care responsibilities will affect her career, will affect her work, and a child's options as to being in a high-quality care or perhaps in a not-very-good-quality care uh, due to the lack of progress maybe of the parents' careers is also affecting their life and that will then have again repercussions on the life of the family later on. So I think you and I probably share this view that we see clear um, correlations maybe between some of these life ch- cha- these life stages and these real life challenges, whereas the policy answers and, and the employer's answers are sometimes very, very separate from one to the other. You You have really seen the whole evolution and spectrum of of this work-life family sphere, also coming from the diversity and inclusion background. And I wanted to ask you, from your point of view, where do you still see the structural and cultural barriers for employers to, to really advance on this and recognize this caring role of their employees or recognize the need for different supports and services um why are we still why are still many employers still at the ping pong table and fruit bowl uh, stage of supporting employees right. so I, I think what's really important is that we have to recognize the primary business function of an employer so whether that is to meet their bottom line build a better product, catch the next innovation curve, have the brightest and best employees. I mean, we we have to start from a recognition of what that primary goal and function is. And then we have to position what we're working to drive, which is essentially culture change. That might come in the form of more flexible work environments. It might come in the form of different benefits and supports and services. It might come in the form of advocating for greater support for caregivers, increased diversity. And we have to think about how to position what we are advocating for in the context of the business goals. And we have to recognize that there are times when the organization is going to, and and I'm going to say detect, (laughs) a conflict between what we're advocating for and what they see as their bottom line. So for example, I think I've seen examples where an organization will think to them, will imagine, wait a minute, you're peddling 
what I perceive as an even slower hiring process than what I have. You're, you're asking me to embrace a more complicated to administer benefit than what I currently have. You're asking me to embrace a way of working that I inherently mistrust. And I think rather than just continuing to repeat our same pitch, which I think is something that we've done, that we have to deeply listen and respond to the challenges to our way of thinking that the businesses are pushing back with. And we have to find small examples internally of the culture that we're seeking to embed because they do exist. I think that that in many organizations, there are managers who understand the value of these kinds of supports and services and are um, usually uh, doing these things on a daily basis with the teams that they support. And so I think if we look carefully, we can sometimes find those examples. I think we have to speak the language of the business and we have to make sure that we're taking business-friendly steps when we can. And then I think we have to find unlikely advocates at all levels of the organization. And then I'm, I'm a big advocate for not waiting to be invited into the discussion, but sort of find what I would refer to as those wedge opportunities. So, um, you know, if you see a real interest in an organization around wellness or uh, around, you know, shorter meetings or, you know, whatever those link topics are that can often be an entree point for the conversation that we're looking to have. And then, you know, you have to be opportunistic um, in this work. And I refer to something that I call having active patience. So this idea that often we do have to be patient and and wait for um, opportunities, but we should be actively preparing ourselves for when those opportunities come along that we're ready. We're ready to seize them. We're ready to, to jump in. That's that's fantastic. And I wanted to just jump on uh, the culture change bit um, because I recently had a conversation with someone around, um, you know, good practice, but also failures in work-life uh, policies and programs. And I even surprised myself by saying that I don't think there are bad policies on flexible work or carers leave or parental leave. But one of the biggest reasons of failure is is that the culture is not ready, right? I mean, you mentioned trust. I, I love that you said that we we asking for people to work in a way that, that managers inherently mistrust. And, and I think that's one of the really big obstacles, right, to to really embed and and make fantastic use of these programs and initiatives because they're just not falling on fertile soil. They're they're falling on a a half-baked system of presenteeism and and career uh, anxiety and maybe job anxiety. Yeah, I mean, so I guess, again, I come back to, in my experience, I've worked with, many managers who wanted to be able to successfully 
enable their teams to embrace all that was available to them. And, and they were going to be doing that by going sort of out on the front line in terms of making something available that was not necessarily fully embraced by the larger organization. And I think as, as work-life advocates, we have to be right there next to them and be preparing them for some of these conversations. So, for example, if they're in a manager meeting and some of their fellow managers are saying to them, well, I would never, I would never feel comfortable with my team working in that way because if we've equipped them to be good advocates, for the culture change that we're trying to drive, they will have answers for those questions. So I think oftentimes we forget that that our our best advocates and our greatest critics and our most worried people are all part of this institution and this organization that we're trying to change. And they're all interacting with each other on a regular basis. And we won't be in 90% of the conversations that are going to happen about this topic. And so we need to be really active in giving our, uh, giving these people what they need to be able to advocate on a regular basis. And and how do you do that? <laughs> is that is that training? Is that toolkits? Is that coaching? So I would say all of the above. <laughs> and and then I know that what that means is resources. And so I want to go back to the thing I said about being opportunistic. I I think that as work-life advocates inside an organization, you have to do your homework and really investigate what kinds of, where you're going to have the opportunity to embed some of this thinking. So if there is a new manager training program that is going to get rolled out, figure out if there's just any way that a case study can include something on a caregiver. Um, If there is a new um, program for employees that is focused on cooperation or collaboration, again, see if there's any way that some small example can leverage one of these work-life conflicts that we know come up regularly and that people are grappling with. So, to me, I think a lot of the work is is at the beginning when somebody is first coming into an organization to try and do this work is they really need to investigate what's already available in terms of culture change opportunities, what's coming down the pike, and what can they influence, even if it's just just getting a case study written into a training can be incredibly powerful because it starts the conversation in a way um, that's, you know, a little, uh, maybe not quite what people would have expected and, and will give them that opportunity to, to think a little bit differently about it. Mm. 
it's a lot of creativity, right? It's a lot of thinking a little bit outside of the very narrow work-life field and linking mm-hmm. it to some of the possible outcomes and some of the possible benefits, but also some of the challenges. Absolutely. Absolutely. One of my favorite examples is actually from a financial institutions where they tried to bring together a resource group for dads um, and nobody showed up to these meetings. So then they restarted with another workshop which was entitled how to raise a high performing child and all of a sudden the room was full of the bankers <laughs> so it's 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 you know it's it's that's what i'm saying it's not the idea was the idea was really good but how you get it how you make it happen needs always a little bit of flexibility well and that takes me back to this point of speaking the right language I think that we become sometimes, we assume that the language that we use around work-life balance, work-life conflict, work-life integration is going to be appreciated and understood. And I actually think we have to be aware of, of what are often the negative connotations that go along with that. And so figuring out ways to speak the language that will resonate inside the organization, and that is going to be different for every organization, is very important. Now, taking us back a little bit to the original um, ideas for our our conversation, because I would like to ask you about your role as, as president of the board of KUFA, because from a European or international point of view, it's, It's a very interesting um, organization to see an association that brings together work-life professionals and particularly from from the higher education institutions in the U.S. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about why that sector particularly has recognized the need for a dedicated work-life professional, work-life department um, and that ensure that these professionals needed to federate and, and support each other and have this point of reference and point of resource. But but why exactly this sector? Mm, that's a great question. So I, in thinking about that, I would say that I think there's three, uh, three reasons. One is hearkening back to what I was saying about um, thinking about what, what the bottom line of a business is, (laughs) you know, our business is educating the next generation and nurturing diversity of thought and solving big world problems. So it kind of makes us the perfect incubator for some of this work. Um, I'd also say that universities have the advantage of a vocal and empowered student population that often serves as a frontline advocacy body for some of these topics. And I think that the, the best mix is when you have a strong administrative leadership to help support that advocacy energy and help align it to the institutional goals and then leverage that creativity. And 
I've seen some of our best and most innovative programs and services and supports come out of that opportunity um, to harness that that strong and passionate advocacy and then uh, the, the support of the institution coming together. And then, you know, finally, in the United States in particular, universities have been fairly active in delivering childcare uh, as one of their benefits probably since the 19, late 1960s, early 1970s. And they recognize the need to have someone internally to oversee that work. So, you know, we have some very visible uh, programs like childcare and then the need to have this advocacy supported. And, and that, I think, has led to the creation of these work-life offices. And then, you know, the reason that we all come together is, like we've just been talking about, we, we still do find it challenging to keep the focus of the institution on some of the culture change work that needs to come alongside these wonderful programs and services. And that's tough work and it requires, from our perspective, a lot of sharing of experiences, making sure that we are all aware of research when it's coming out and, and how to leverage that research. And then to really have honest conversations with one another about what's working and and what's not working. For the benefit of our international audience and those that are maybe new to this topic, besides childcare, what would be you know some of the typical programs or services that these work life uh, managers or work life departments offer? To, to the communities of these higher education institutions? Right, that's a great question. So I'll give you uh, sort of a laundry list. I, I don't want this to be taken as an example of that every institution has all of these things, but um, you know, this will give you some sense. So typically in alignment with childcare centers, there might be the offering of a backup emergency care program. So if someone's regular child care breaks down, um, often there's um, a system by which somebody can have a, a backup <laughs> arrangement um, brought to them. Uh, we also, a lot of our institutions help people find child care. So if someone is coming in new to the area or they've just had a baby, um, Sometimes it's referred to as a resource and referral where they will be given uh, recommendations for where to go find openings, how to look for child care, and how to make the child care decision uh, is, is often a service. Usually there's some sort of alignment to uh, people returning from leave. So that might look like um, a, a training that would give you insights into all of your leave benefits and then how to plan for your return. That's usually aligned to support services for women who want to continue to breastfeed when they come back. So where to find 
lactation rooms on campus, um, how to talk to your manager about adjusting um, your time so that you can uh, pump while you're at work. We also usually are supporting people who are caring for aging adults in their lives, so at the other end of the life spectrum. So that might be um, just some, some coaching for how to think about some of the difficult conversations that might need to happen. Um, sometimes there are, many of our organizations have workshops that support these different ages and stages. Um, sometimes people have done innovative uh, support of peers. So maybe that's bringing together networks of people that are in similar ages and stages. Um, might be original content that's been developed to help people think through work-life conflict. And then usually people are in these organizations are also helping the larger institution think about culture change. So that might be through an employee engagement lens or through a wellness lens or something like that. And the work-life person is at the table um, in support of those efforts and bringing the work-life topic forward. Mm. That's really, really interesting. Um, and so th this existed in the U.S. at... Um, higher education institutions. But I remember one of our earlier conversations when we're discussing kind of the broader economy and other employers in the US, but also elsewhere, where some of this portfolio tends to land on the desk of the diversity and inclusion manager. And I find it also very interesting that you yourself come from the diversity inclusion realm. So w why do you think other employers, with the, you know, very few exceptions, haven't embraced this more holistic look at, um, at work-life issues? And, and, and what is your take maybe on the kind of the second part of the question on, on diversity and inclusion picking this up? I think that one of the things that I see is these topics are very much impacted by the constriction and expansion of the economy. And so, you know, as, as the economy expands and there's more resources to look beyond the basics of the business survival, then some of these topics begin to pick up a little bit of momentum. And unfortunately, in my experience, just about the time we're beginning to really get some momentum, then we usually have some sort of economic change. <laughs> um, and all of a sudden, people's priority needs to revert back to the basics of the business. So, you know, one of the things that I think we have to constantly be doing is thinking about how to embed these programs in a way that enables them to remain sustainable, even during those sorts of economic shifts. And again, where it's important that this idea of, of being um, 
as collaborative and in support of one another and in support of the various ways that these topics intersect with one another uh, is some of the best work that we can do. Um, you know, when, when there are resources being put our way uh, so that in the time of more scarcity, um, you know, again, we can creatively be in support of one another. Well, time is, uh, of course, always way too short on, on the podcast conversations. And, and I've been really, really enjoying your insights, Phyllis. It's wonderful that you share this so generously with, with the audience. So before we go to the last question, um, would you mind telling listeners where they can uh, find out more about KUFA and perhaps also um, connect with you? Absolutely. So we do have a very wonderful website for KUFA, College and University Work Family Association, that I encourage people to uh, go to. And then I'm also available through LinkedIn if people would like to continue the conversation a little bit further. That's great. So we will put the link to the KUFA website also into the, the description of the podcast. Now, the last question, which is always the same here on the Work Life Hub podcast. If I could ask you, Phyllis, to give one advice to senior leaders in organizations around embracing work-life integration, work-life management, uh, what would be your advice? So I'm going to take this a little bit from the direction of those people who are trying to do the culture change. Uh, relative to this topic. And I'm going to say that my advice is to cultivate your core. Uh, and I say that both literally and figuratively. This is hard work. And, you know, sometimes I feel like the sea captain trying to steer my ship um, as the chop of the sea sort of tosses us all around. And so, uh, you know, my recommendation is to plant your feet firmly Drop anchor and ride out the storm is sometimes the best thing to do. Change course as needed. Ride the turbulence and, you know, keep your eye on that horizon. Um, this, as again, this is work that takes a very long time. And I'm, again, I've, I come back to this term active patience. I've had to cultivate much more patience over my career than I started out with, but I have tried to never lose my, my desire for and my, um, my willingness to also push for progress. And so I think those two things in combination can give you what you need to keep at it and continue to, to keep pushing these topics forward and to not lose, um, not lose that vision of what brings you to the work in the, in the first place and why you believe it's important. Well, thank you so much, Phyllis, for really sharing your wisdom and your insight and, and your experience. For me, it has been a really enlightening uh, and very affirming uh, conversation. So I appreciate your time and I really wish you the best of success um, with continuing uh, steering this ship. 
Thank you, Agnes. It's been such a pleasure to chat with you. And I, too, appreciate um, you continuing to advocate uh, for this work and advocate for even more focus on the work-life topic um, within organizations. Thank you very much.